Hello and welcome to the Courage to Be podcast, where we explore how to raise your game, lean into discomfort and have more impact and purpose. I am your host, Sinead Millard. But fundamentally, we are able to have a massive diversity of people come here and be themselves. So in teams I'm in, we, we are continually aspiring for that. And it's all very well to have diversity and people, and that's sort of easy to understand what that is in some ways. But I think people are often get a bit confused around what inclusion really means. And that, that, that's the highest standard of that, is that you have this powerful sense of who you are, that powerful self-belonging. You bring it into an environment and they accept it. And I think once that happens, you can fly. You can absolutely fly. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Courage to Be podcast. My goodness, it's been so long since I've said that. Thank you all for your patience. Um, it's been a while since I published the last episode. It's been a nice jolly break. Uh, I'm actually in Ireland at the moment, having some downtime. So it was a really good time to revisit the podcast. And I've been bursting to share this particular conversation with you. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Owen Eastwood, a world-leading performance coach and author of recently published book Belonging, the number one international bestseller and a book that lives on my bedside table. You know those books that you just read and reread and for me it's been one that has I guess inspired me to really reflect on my career in particular. Um, Owen has worked with some of the top sporting and business organisations including the England football team the South African cricket team, the Royal Ballet and the command group of NATO, to name just a few. I went into this conversation with so many thoughts, having, like I said, read the book many times and I was left feeling energised and inspired and I'm still reflecting on some of the insights and stories that Owen shared and I'm still talking about the conversation with anyone who will listen so it's really nice to be able to share it with you guys and as always please let me know any reflections that you have or pass this conversation along to anyone that you think could benefit or enjoy. All right guys that's all from me I'll hand you over to Owen. Welcome to the podcast Owen. Thank you very much. So I think we'll begin I guess the the theme or the title of this podcast is The Courage to Be, which speaks to what it means to live a life according to our values, to express ourselves in a truly authentic way and to speak from a place of truth. In fact, the root of the word courage comes from the Latin word core, um, mm -hmm. which means heart. And in one of its earliest forms, the word courage meant to speak one's mind by telling all one's heart and I think herein lies a nice introduction um, because to do this we must feel a sense of belonging um, which of course is, is your new book and I'd love Owen to start here could you tell us a little bit um, about your new book and more importantly the inspiration or the impetus behind writing um, Belonging well, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to it, and it's it's a real honour to be part of it. That's beautiful the way you described courage there. Um, I find that very powerful. I haven't had it articulated quite that way before. And so, there's something that sits before belonging for me, and that is is our identity. And I think one of the most amazing things you can really do in life is probably construct and play around with your own sense of identity. Um, where you come from, how you see yourself, and then how you vision yourself into the future. Uh, in belonging, you know, I talk about I'm so proud of my three lines of ancestry, really. The Maori people, the indigenous people of New Zealand, but just as much my Irish ancestry. Uh, County Kerry, the Dingle Peninsula, um, spent wonderful times there. And then my English ancestry as well, and that's where I reside today. So one, once you have a sense of your own identity, then it becomes clear what are the groups that you belong to. And they have a deep meaning to them. And obviously when we are in a working environment, we feel strongly about 
those groups hopefully and that's part of our identity and part of our belonging same with our schools and churches and all different types of groups we're part of so definitely one of my ambitions with belonging is to encourage people to really reflect on who you are feel empowered by all the rich heritage that is inevitably part of you and work hard to make meaningful connections to those groups. So on that, I mean, you touched on um, your background. I'd love to hear a little bit more, maybe if your earlier years and your upbringing and perhaps how that's informed not just the book, but the work that you do today. Yeah, my so my mother was fourth generation New Zealander, but it was she's probably as Irish as anyone in Ireland. <laughs> the Irish kept um, marrying each other in New Zealand for four generations, so all of her ancestry is, is, is Irish. Uh, my father, he was part Maori and part English, so his his father was an Englishman who fought in the First World War, and at the end of that war, came and relocated to live starting new life in New Zealand. And he married a Maori woman, my grandmother Rose. And um, so that's a rich ancestry that I inherited. And I suppose this all has a sharp edge for me because rather than just sort of lazily walking down my path, um, I've had to really think hard and work hard around my identity because when I was five, my father passed away very suddenly. And... He was an only child. Uh, his mother, my grandmother Rose, lived a thousand miles to the north. So we would only, in a different island, so we'd only see her once every year or two. Um, so we were, became disconnected from that whole part of our family. And obviously that was where the, the Maori heritage in particular resided. So growing up, I knew I was part of this very powerful, strong culture but at the same time, I felt completely disconnected from it. And that just really irked me. And it was something that I was just continuously restless about, that I was feeling denied of, of my true identity, I suppose. And yeah, when I was 12, I wrote to our tribe, Naitahu, who was the main tribe in the South Island of New Zealand, and I just wrote this letter in my little handwriting <laughs> and just said to them, I told them about my father, and I said, I believe I'm part of this tribe, but I don't know anything about it. Um, can you please tell me? You know, effectively, I was asking them to tell me who I am. They wrote an unbelievable letter with incredible, rich stories and whakapapa, this Maori word, um, which was 23 generations of ancestors. And it was this this powerful letter of belonging and saying that you belong with us and, and really welcome me back to the tribe. And from, from that moment on, um, that part of the heritage was reconnected to, which I'd lost between the ages of five and 12. And it's still something that um, you know, I work on all the time to try and make sure that that part of my heritage, just as with the Irish and the English, is something that I take motivation and, and, motiv and inspiration from. There's two things I'm thinking. There's incredible stories. Faka Papa, if I'm am I pronouncing that yeah, correctly? Perfect. I'd love to hear more about that. But then the other thing that just is very strong in my mind as you share that story, what is it within you at the age of twelve that has this natural and innate desire to 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 know where you came from? Or perhaps is it that innate sense of wanting that belonging i'm just really curious and perhaps how that differed between you and your siblings or or did it mm. it did differ with my siblings they were not as maybe focused around that part um maybe that's unfair maybe they were but they weren't as motivated to do something about it probably as i was that was probably my personality i think to answer your question one thing i've learned through becoming a performance coach and working with some uh, wonderful people, including some you know tremendous psychologists, is that even at 12, what I was seeking was to connect to something bigger than myself. And what, what has definitely happened over the last few hundred years, particularly in Western societies, is we've become much more individualistic. 
and less collectivist. And, you know, you talk to um, academics and psychologists, as I have done, and they will say to you that still the most powerful form of human motivation is the pursuit of a collective purpose rather than an individual purpose. And I write about this in Belonging, that in those more individualistic societies, often in a in a team culture environment, there's these conversations with individuals around what's your purpose? What's your mission in life? What are your personal values? And I've never felt comfortable around that. I've never had a sense of my personal mission or personal purpose. Um, I've always thought that my purpose and my mission is related to the groups that I belong to, primarily my family, but all other groups and teams that I've become connected with. That collective mission and the collective purpose is what matters. And my job my job is to be part of that. I, I've always felt that, and it's, you know, speaking to some of these uh, psychologists and academics, they will say that, you know, when you're uh, pursuing an individual mission, you know, your dopamine levels could be quite high, but when you're actually pursuing a collective uh, purpose or mission, then actually you also, oxytocin and these other hormones get involved, and it's more powerful, it's more energetic. And I think that relates to you know our, our story, our evolutionary story. It comes back to the idea of belonging, that we were always associating our well-being um, as being part of a group. So the group needed to do well for us to do well. You know, as a hunter-gatherers, we, there's no point wandering around just thinking about your own personal purpose and mission in life. What mattered for all of us in our survival and our well-being was that we were part of this group that did well. And in fact, in the book, I interview a former All Black, Jerome Kaino. And I actually put this question to him, tried to tried not to, you know, hint at my personal views. And I just put the question to him and I said, Jerome, tell me, um, and, and Jerome is a New Zealand Samoan. Um, and I said, tell me, what's your personal purpose in life? And he actually answered and said, I actually don't know what that question means. My purpose in life is what my family my tribe, my church, and my team's need from me. And to me, that is powerful. But more than that, I think that is the real insight into what we have been historically wired as people. And I think we've just had this incredible shift again in the last couple of hundred years towards this more individual way of looking at life. And um, and I, I want to challenge that. Why do you think that shift has occurred? What's yeah, what what's happened for that to, for us to move towards a more individualistic approach? There's a d there's deep political, economic, uh, societal reasons for that. Um, I think from the Renaissance on, you know, rights of the individual, um, free market type of economy uh, has evolved. All of these things have pushed us towards the individual. I mean, for for for. Hunter gatherers, the idea of money or the idea of competing against each other wouldn't have made any sense. Um, even when the British colonised New Zealand two hundred years ago, the idea that people, you know, the, the indigenous people would set up businesses in competition with each other and would measure each and measure their success by how much money they made would make no sense at all. That's a very individualistic way of setting up a society. That's what most people in the world are, are not used to. So, yeah, it's many positives around that, but it's been a big shift, particularly in Western Europe and the United States in the last few hundred years and probably accelerating even further now. But when you get away from those societies, and I've got to work in Polynesia and Africa and Asia, you see that in those societies, those traditional ways of thinking around collective purpose, um, around belonging, around the suppression of individualism is still incredibly strong. And if you actually live a life which is in contrast to that, you know, you will get <laughs> taken down. If you're seen to have a big ego and you're worried about your celebrity and how rich you are, a lot of societies, including the one I come from, will challenge you without any hesitation. I think as you say that, something that's come up for me and as I've been preparing for this conversation as well, I've been reflecting on my time within organisations and at times, perhaps in my earlier careers, confusing um, approval with belonging or fitting in, feeling valued 
perhaps. Um, and and I think what, that's why I'd like to explore this because I think everything that you say that just makes so much sense, but yet we're very often not taught this and perhaps it would be wonderful if we didn't have to and it was incredibly organic, but I'm just thinking of perhaps listeners who are currently part of an organisation. Um, they're working towards certain KPIs. Um, they feel like mm-hmm. they're being measured or perhaps even measured against their peers, depending on on the environment. And what perhaps would you say to listeners who say, look, I resonate with this. I think I'm, I'm yearning or I'm craving that that sense of belonging. But yet I have perhaps this paradox where I spend 75 percent of my time in an organization where fundamentally I'm not really sure if if I if I fit in or if I belong. Well, I think there's two important points you make there. One is around motivation um, and another one is around belonging. So just dealing on the motivation one first, as you know, I was was a lawyer for 20 Mm. years before I became a performance coach and um, in a city law firm in London. I was a partner there for quite a few years as well. And the way we set ourselves up is a massive reflection on this individualist approach to work and to performance. And so I'll give you an example. I remember in my firm, which was a great firm, and I loved actually loved being a lawyer. I wasn't scurrying off at all. I just found something which was a bit more probably me. But um, yeah, I remember we, you know, we were remunerated and therefore in many ways promoted based on our individual earnings. And I remember stopping at, a, at various points in time in my career and going, you know what, my remuneration is not actually tied to the success of the firm. There were definitely years where the firm didn't meet its targets, but I did, and I got bonuses and my pay rise and kept moving up towards partnership. And I, I, even at the time, I thought, it was crazy. I mean, why are we not, why, why are we structured in a way which is not perfectly aligned to us having this collective purpose and collective performance and all being part of that? I mean, I should be remunerated based on how we do overall rather than just me as an individual. So what, what, what happened was that when you've got it, when you're set up like that, you, what you are doing is you're motivating selfish behaviours. Because if I'm going to be remunerated, not on if the firm does well, but on whether I'm doing well, well, of course, I'm, most people are probably likely to use that as their filter. And I actually remember once our firm got a chance to pitch quite a, a potentially very significant new client in the financial area. And I remember it was all came in last minute. And over the Thursday and Friday, they were trying to put this big pitch together. And I remember there was a real problem getting buy-in from partners to be part of this pitch. It made no sense. It could have been a potential game changer for the firm, in my view. But what was happening was that the way it was set up is that only the, only the partner of one department would have got most of the credit for that new client. So actually, the other partners who was going to have to give up that time and give up a weekend in order to prepare for it, they individually would not benefit directly from the success, even though it could have a massive impact on the overall firm. So it disincentivized people from getting away from just clocking their hours and, and getting involved in this. And it was, it was mad. But that, that is where we've got to. So that's a, from an HR point of view, I suppose, from a remuneration, from a promotion career pathway point of view, I think there's some real flaws in, in, in some of those environments. In terms of the belonging, I mean, we can get into that. I do think that it's not only in working environments and performance environments and a lot of environments. When you join a team, you don't really get a strong signals of you belong here. You get signals of prove yourself and in the meantime, conform. So they're more not so much belonging cultures, more conformist cultures. And down the line, if you work hard and we like you, then you will get this gift of belonging. And to me, that is fundamentally flawed if you're trying to get the best performance out of an individual. That's just going to have them marinating in anxiety and um, leaking energy for far too long and at the price of actually really, really performing at their best. 
And actually something we talk, I'd love to maybe just go into this a little bit deeper, something that we talk about on the podcast here is just this idea of masking and how we just drain our energy when we're actually going in. And if I, everything that you're saying, I just can't help but reflect back in particular. So I started out in my career in Dublin and I moved to the US, English speaking country, never really, I wasn't necessarily thinking about what my induction would feel like or my onboarding would be like um and it was it was a real struggle for six months if I remember my my induction was very process driven here's your laptop here's your boss who I couldn't find for 24 hours (laughs) um awesome boss lots of lots of um Americanisms and jargon and Orbe slang and 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 you know wonderful and you know if I look at kind of post six months I, I met my, my, my the, the people I could connect with as friends, right? And, and I met some wonderful people within the organization. But now I have a better sense, even as you shared that, of perhaps why I felt the way I did in those, in those early weeks. And I guess it's, it, I, I just, I'd love to elaborate or maybe even hear your, the beginning of your legal career, so you 12 years as a lawyer. Can you remember that starting point and what was that like for you? Yeah. Well, I will share that with you. I haven't really spoken about that before, but um, I would share that with you. I'll make, I'll point out a real contradiction. When you got that role in New York, they had gone through an incredibly extensive recruitment process. They would have had very strong criteria. You know, I don't know how many interviews you had. It would have been multiple, no doubt. They would have carefully scored you against other candidates and you were the best candidate and you're offered the role. And the crazy thing that happens is that, so that in their minds, they think you're special and you're going to add value to them. The crazy thing is when you come in for your induction, no one actually has that conversation with you. It's not about doing elaborate, funky things. What it's about is someone just going to you and saying, Sinead, we are so glad that you've accepted the offer to be here. You know, you blew our socks off in the interview. If these are the qualities about you which are so strong and which we believe fit us as a culture and are going to really drive our business vision as well. And um, we can't wait to work with you. And this is a place where we want you to feel that you can really be yourself and have a deep sense of belonging. It's just those type of conversations. And then get people around you. So your team that you're going to work with, get around together and just say everyone's going to actually just introduce themselves and going to share a little bit about you know who we are and how what we're trying to do here and you'll get a chance to have that personal connection too and just tell your beautiful backstory of where you've come from and what your aspirations are here it's not complicated is it it's not it's not hard why wouldn't you it's just it's put it another way. When you come in the team, I, just, I would love someone to come over to you and put their arm around you and say, "Welcome, you belong here. Mm. Let's do something special over the next few years together." It's it's, but we don't do it, and and and, and but some cultures do do it, and that's yeah. where I enjoy. Um, yeah, and and look in terms of my own, yeah, I can relate to you your experience completely. You know, when I came to this country and started up working as a lawyer in England. I hadn't studied English law at all. Um, New Zealand has a common law system, but the laws are very different. Um, and so I, I, that was nerve-wracking in itself, to be getting this job in a city law firm and not actually <laughs> really knowing any law. Um, being able to have good guesses, but then having to go and you know actually find the proper answer. So that was nerve-wracking. And being a New Zealander... I was the first New Zealander to join the firm. I don't think that was necessarily a big deal, but I do remember the very first big meeting I attended, which was once a month, one of the partners would lead a conversation around these are the latest uh, legislative developments and case law, etc. So we would all make sure that we're on top of the latest law. And uh, that was nerve-wracking, incredibly bright people. It was... My firm was, a, I was an employment lawyer and they were the top employment law practice in the country, so they were super smart. And I remember in that first meeting, uh, I was asked a question. So we'll go around the table and we'd be asked questions around certain cases to make sure you'd read them and you could explain it. And I was so nervous, can't tell you. 
And I did all right. Didn't do brilliant, but I did okay. But I do remember someone not not in any um, bad intent at all, just probably trying to make me feel comfortable. I'm not sure, but they did make a comment about my New Zealand accent, and they sort of mimicked what I'd said, a word I'd said, and everyone laughed, and I laughed, but. I did not enjoy that comment at all. It made me feel so much like an outsider. And I was already feeling like academically I wasn't quite up to speed and then I felt like even more like an outsider and it really shut me down. I would say it was probably six months before I put my hand up in that meeting again to answer a question. Um, and you know, again, it wasn't anything malicious at all. It was just a bit of thoughtlessness. But it really affected my that sense of belonging. You know, I didn't, it was a real signal to me that you don't really belong here. And um, that dissipated over time, but that, they did get that bit wrong <laughs> at the start. So, so what happens when you don't feel that sense of belonging? So physically, emotionally, from a performance perspective. So if we were to just to take, take even an organizational example, yeah, when, when you have that moment of, oh, I, I just don't belong, whether that's just an unconscious feeling physically and emotionally what's happening I think one of the things that happens is the energy does get drained so for example when you don't feel you belong you are really really sensitive to the signaling around you so if somebody gives you some feedback or even someone makes some general comment you really start interpreting what are they trying to say here because I'm, I'm feeling insecure about whether they really have really accepted me yet or whether they're holding back judgment. So when I get a bit of feedback, does that mean actually they're starting to push towards the idea that you're not good enough to be here and that you might and we might move you on? Um, when other people are getting together for a drink after work, you walk past the pub and there's six people that you work with, they're all having a drink together and you're not invited to it or, or whatever. Then, if you feel a sense, of, if you feel secure and you feel belonging, you know you could. Oh, yeah, I understand that's it's Joe's birthday and that's cool. That's their group. But actually, if you don't feel that belonging and you're feeling insecure, that can just play on your mind for days. Do they? They, they don't. Have they heard something? Maybe that I'm not going to be around much longer, or, or do they not like me, or, or or is it something to do with my identity story that they don't like? So, so that's one of the in in a high performance environments where I work. You can't afford to be wasting energy with people worrying about the social dynamic around them. We need people to feel confident, secure, that they belong, so that they're not marinating around all of these little cues around them and misinterpreting and misreading it, and that they're feeling psychologically safe and they're feeling confident and secure to just focus on the work and the performance and the connection with each other. Because another thing that happens is when we don't feel we belong, we tend to become insular. Because I don't want to put my head above the parapet and potentially say something or do something which attracts criticism or negativity. So rather than come out and be ourselves, we go tight and small and maybe operate around the shadows. And certainly things like, I don't understand exactly, Sinead, what you're asking me to do. Or... I know I've got a real weakness around my professional skills. I'm not likely to put my hand up and acknowledge those things mm. um, if I'm feeling insecure and I don't feel belonging and that trust and psychological safety. So all of, and that just holds performance back. So for me, that's disastrous as a performance coach to have people who are not understanding exactly what's required of them. Um, or have some weaknesses that they aren't mending based on the idea that if they put their hand up, they feel that they may be removed, isolated. We can't afford to have that happen. So we just have to be so intentional around making people understand that you've earned the right to be here. We love and respect you and you belong. It's funny, some of the examples that you shared, shared there in terms of openness and vulnerability and very often that becomes a little bit, uh, I'm generalizing, it can become a buzzword, like let's be more open, let's be more vulnerable. But it's really interesting because this foundational piece of do I belong is so critical to oh, being able to express ourselves, mm -hmm. you know? And I think 
it's and, and if we do express ourselves from a place of insecurity that that feels even like the ramifications of that um also don't sit too nicely mm. that's a great point it's over someone can come and give you a wonderful lecture um or 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 a even share content, Amy Edmondson, around psychological safety. So you intellectually get it. Mm. Yeah, that's a place we want to have. But from my experience, I would argue that that's still unattainable unless people have a strong sense of belonging. Mm. And if they don't feel they belong and they still feel like an outsider, then everything is working against being vulnerable, um, being open, giving and taking feedback in the optimal way. So I, I do... I. I honestly believe that belonging is not necessarily well understood in terms of uh, culture, working cultures, and there needs to be more about it. And it's not only inducting you in the right way and making sure that you feel valued and seen. It's also belonging requires you belonging to an identity story of this group. And that's another thing that is often missed, particularly in a corporate environment, I think that the leaders, when, when you arrive in this new role, there needs to be space created for people to explain this is the tribe, this is the team that you have joined. This is our story. This is our genesis, our origin story. These are the values that are passed down from our people who came before us to us, and we really believe in these. And this is a vision of what we want to do in the future and the legacy we could leave. And, and that... And I spend a lot of time with teams working on that. So it's not just all about you. It's also coming back the other way is that tell me, what is the identity story of this team? And again, in my corporate, um, don't be, I'm not being harsh on them, but it was a lovely place and I really enjoyed it. But it actually had an amazing history, a really very cool origin story. I found all that out about 10 years after I left. <laughs> And it was never explained, it was never expressed. It was just like, we're professional and we're rated here in all the rankings and we're growing at this rate. And that was all the narrative about who we were. But the actual emotional story that I wanted to belong to was denied. And actually, it's, it's a great story. It's a really, really good story. So hopefully in the people that come have come after me, it's a story that they're told. But once you have that identity story, then you've got something to attach belonging to. So to me, there's two facets to it. It's how we bring you into our team, but it's also what you connect with. Yeah, I love that. And I'm interested. So I guess before reading your book, Owen, and before learning more about the work that you do and having this conversation with you, I thought about belonging a little bit more in the context of some of the inner work one needs to do to understand themselves, right? When in terms of, um, and I know there's two parts, I just want to see how they're in- interconnected, right? So understanding, so being, having a sense of belonging to myself, right? So being at peace with who it is I am, mm-hmm. obviously there's still room for growth um, <laughs> and perhaps the shadow sides to myself that I'm, that I'm less proud of um, and having to do the work to understand what, yeah, what do I value? Perhaps what have I inherited that I want to let go? What are qualities that I'd like to bring to my interactions, to my relationships? And then there's this whole other piece, which is our environment. And I guess what I'm curious about is the work of the individual and then also how that's interconnected with the environment in which they're in. Because I'm imagining if you've got a team of, I'm just making this up, 20 players, right? Perhaps their baseline sense of belonging is all, is quite different. So how much is it over to us to do do the work, so to speak, and also be a part of an environment that is enabling us um, Mm. to continue to do the work and to belong? Oh, what a beautiful question, and um, I love the way you talk about belonging to yourself. That's awesome. I've never heard that expression before. And that really comes back to the start of this conversation, is that I do think it's one of the joys, and also it's tough as well, but I think it is a joy to actually construct our own identity story and for that to be as absolutely authentic as possible. It's not, we're not constructing a story we want other people to like. We're actually, and this takes time and maturity, really. This is actually who I am. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
but for me a real heavy reflection on the ancestry which not everybody would take that approach but that's certainly my approach is that I find I'm very empowered and I can tell you stories specific stories about that if you like in this conversation so I love that idea that once you have a strong sense of identity and you have a and you have a comfort and acceptance and a belonging of that that's a great way to interact with the world isn't it Mm. I think that's you've put that beautifully so I completely agree with that. And then the next part of it to me is the absolute aspiration. How wonderful would it be for you to go into an environment where your identity is laid out there and people accept you for who you are? And with your identity story revolves religion, ethnicity, um, sexuality, personality, diversity, whatever. How wonderful life would be if you go into an environment and you are able to be yourself. And actually that is what I believe inclusive cultures should be aspiring to, is that, yes, we have our own framework about what we're trying to do together and we have a cultural model and that we, and, and that's all good and high standards and all those things. But fundamentally we are able to have a massive diversity of people come here and be themselves. So in teams I'm in, we we are continually aspiring for that, and it's all very well to have diversity, um, and people, and that's sort of easy to understand what that is in some ways. But I think people are often get a bit confused around what inclusion really means, mm. and that that that's the highest standard of that is that you have this powerful sense of who you are, that powerful self belonging, you bring it into an environment, and they accept it. And I think once that happens, you can fly. You can absolutely fly. You can just be yourself and then work your socks off with these people around you and live these standards together and work towards this vision together. And what would you say to, I guess, I'm looking at um, the earlier stages of a professional career, and I guess a lot of this is autobiographical and reflecting back on, on my own time. And... How can organizations perhaps support or enable that sense of inner belonging or awareness or self-inventory um, alongside of creating that environment? Have you any thoughts on that or perhaps um, the role an organization may play in being a part of that? Well, there's no doubt about that. With you know, teams I work with, we would you know, ritualistically have a process that when people come in, we create a space not only to welcome them, but to, for them to share their story of who they are. Mm. And but before they do that, we will have other people who are already established in the team introduce themselves. So this is, and also I, I like to focus this on peers rather than hierarchy. So I suppose if we're thinking about a corporate team or working team, it's not necessarily the CEO or the regional head or the divisional head or, or whatever. It can be your peers, but we create this this setting, this environment where you're welcomed, you're told that you're valued and that um, you belong, that someone would share with you the story of who we are as a business or as a group or as a team, our, you know, the origin story and, and how we see ourselves and our strong beliefs and how we see the future. And then some of the other key people in your team introduce themselves, you know, in a group setting around... Well, I've been here for five years. I came from here. Um, this is my sense of identity of who I am. And um, and that includes a few crazy quirks you're going to see um, in the office every day. And, you know, and, and, I, and, and I'm not joking about that. I think that's very important, you know. And you then, and obviously you're not necessarily going to completely have full disclosure, but that's a setting where you can say, well, this is who I am. And that's unbelievably empowering. So this is where I come from. This is where I grew up. This is why I'm a lawyer or a banker or, or whatever the role is, a plumber, whatever it is. Um, this is my personality. So, you know, and this is what I'm really looking forward to by being part of this team. So we would always set that up right at the very, very start. And so your identity can be communicated. And I, I, I'll give an example. I work with a, a national team, um, the South African cricket team, for a number of years. 
And we, this is a ritual in the team that you would come in and we would get the bar stools of, for the new players to sit in front of the team. And a senior player, not the coach, not a manager, but the senior player would welcome them and ask them these questions about where did you grow up? Where did you first play cricket? And what does it mean to other people that you're in this team? And they were the three standard questions and we'd have a bit of a chat from there. And some of the things were incredible. You know, you would have people that would say, well, I come from a township. Um, I didn't play cricket between... 12 and 16 because in our township there were gangs and they would bet on street games and I wouldn't comply and they came to my house and they told my parents that if I ever ignored their instructions on the uh, on what to do in these games which they were betting on, then they would burn our house down. So my mother said you're not to play cricket again. And explain this story and then would also say, you know, I know some of you guys probably think I'm a bit of an introvert and a bit quiet. I don't speak up much. I sort of keep to myself. Um, I think if you understand my background, you see why I'm like that. And when I come into a new environment, I don't automatically trust, trust it. Like some of you guys who went to these nice fancy schools and had these privileged upbringings probably trust people automatically and trust environments. I actually don't feel like that takes a while for me to feel comfortable, so just bear with me. I mean, how mm. powerful is that? I mean, I've got goosebumps genuinely, and that's that's hearing it from not even firsthand. No, no, the thing about it is that it, that accelerates their ability to function as a team because what can happen if that conversation never takes place, you're looking at this guy and you're wondering, keeps to himself, is he really into this? Is he really, Is he, he looks a bit selfish, doesn't seem to be bothered about what we're doing, doesn't seem to make an effort you know, to sit with other people. He's just sitting with that guy that he plays with, you know, went to school with. And you can misinterpret these signals. And you can end up being a couple, and then a year or two later, people are saying, he's actually a really good guy once you get to know him. I mean, to me, let's blow that up. We need to be, we need to accelerate this connection and understanding of each other. And I really believe the very, very start of someone coming into a team is the optimal moment to do it. And there's always that one person, and I'm thinking of this in broader terms, not necessarily joining a new team, but let's just imagine, uh, actually there's a lovely um, Irish poet, John O'Donoghue, I'm sure if you're familiar with his work, mm. but um, he's got a lovely poem, actually, Belonging, which you might enjoy. Um, but, you know, he talks about um, having people around his dinner table and he'll always say there's a little bit of chit chat and then he'll say, come on, lads, let's go beneath the surface now. And let's go beneath the surface. It's almost like like those sh- stories you shared. It wasn't just a token. Let's introduce ourselves. Well, I grew up here. I went to this school, and I've got two brothers and one sister. And it just takes that one person, which obviously it's facilitated in that context. But I'm just talking about we have how many social interactions in any one day, right? Potentially, we've got a radar for belonging, right? What can yeah. we do in those small interactions to yeah. just to, to, to perhaps? bring bring something to that conversation that enables people to open up and have that sense of belonging in a very mm. small situation well uh, that reminds me feedback oh my god feedback mm. so beyond the induction phase then we're into the real reality and the rhythm of working together and feedback sends incredible belonging cues so I'll, get, I'll, I'll contrast two different ways of giving feedback. First way is I've just joined a law, a law firm. I'm nervous that I've got a probationary period of three months, which will, there'll be a formal decision of whether I could stay or not. But then we all know that after 12 months, um, there'll be another review basically of whether I should stay or whether I, can, I could go. And then obviously if I stay, then there's still big questions as to whether you're one of the ones who will go up to partnership. So there's all that anxiety there. And if I get feedback from my manager or, or partner or whatever, which is like, oh, and that was a pretty good piece of work. Um, I think you, you really do need to be more practical in how you articulate some of the advice. You, you've, you've, you've covered all the points off well, but actually this is not practical enough for our clients. You know, they want... Don't want to let, they don't want an academic opinion. They want to know what to do next. And it's a bit of a weakness of yours, and you need to keep working on it. And, you know, we've, we have been talking about this for a while. So if, if I get that type of feedback, what I'm thinking about is, oh, my God, I'm not up to their standard. 
I'm below the line that they've set. I don't belong here. I'm, going, I'm, I'm not going to get through the probationary period or 12 months. This is going to go badly for me. That's what I'm thinking because I'm a, it's being objectified. A different way of giving feedback is to say, Sinead, that piece of work you did today, thank you so much for um, all the time and effort you put into that and the thinking. I love it. I'm going to give you a bit of feedback now, but let's frame it the right way. Now, this remember when you first joined, this is the vision we had for what type of lawyer you could become. I think you could become a sensational lawyer. You're academically outstanding, but the thing about you is you really connect with people. You've got these unbelievable personal skills, and you're a practical person. So one of your super strengths as a lawyer, and this vision we've got for you as you will develop over the next few years, is this strength around guiding people in a practical way is going to be amazing. It's going to set you apart. And um, it's going to be what people are going to talk about you. So I think in this piece of work here, I don't, I don't think you completely exercise that strength you've got. You know, I think it was you're holding back a little bit. So we have a chat about it. I'd, I'd like to know why, but I think you're holding back a little bit. I wasn't completely clear what they should do next. So there, there's two different ways. One is you're not good enough, and mm. um, the other one is you are a star. We value you. You've got such a role to play here. You've got such a future with us. You're not quite, we're not, we're still not at that vision of what you could become. That's fine. We're just tracking towards it. And let's pick up on this because this is a good way of improving, you know? So even feedback conversations have a massive impact on belonging. How you, when you go home at the end of either of those days, you would have two very, very different emotional feelings probably. And the word that came to mind as you were sharing that uh, second example is just caring which yeah. I don't always associate with leadership um mm. so, so maybe if we are to perhaps look at the evolving role of a leader what is that and, and, and perhaps I can't help but reflect on the year that has just passed and is that an impetus for people to start looking at things a little bit different and to care for their people in a slightly different way mm. well you could get me off on this one because um I speak, you know I think there's a big difference between managing people and leading people and to me, leading people is fundamentally based on caring about them. Um, if we go back to our evolutionary story, this need to belong comes from the brutal reality that for 99% for of our history, and in fact, I would say 100% of our history, if you weren't part of a group, if you were isolated or rejected, ostracized, then you would um, not be well, to put it mildly. You would be, be, become ill, but you, in most of our history, you would you'd perish if you didn't feel part of a group. So the leader always understood that we are in a group fundamentally to be taken care of and to work towards some collective goals. Um, if that was a hunter-gatherer tribe or, or whatever other form of it, family is probably the most profound version of this so being part of a group our well-being is at the center of it that's why we are why we form groups in a much higher level than other primates so i think leaders understand that they understand that you need to feel safe and secure here and then we can work together managers you know is more around this is our process these are the individuals who we need to execute the plans and they are focused on you know what happens, what the outcome is, and what we're producing, and what we're, um, you know. So, yeah, I think there is a big difference between leading and managing. And I think during the lockdown, for sure, I mean, I obviously coach a lot, but I also have tons of conversations with leaders, corporate sports, um, who I don't work with. They just want to have a conversation, and I'm normally open for that. And seen a, such a spectrum of different ways of managing people and leading people during that period and some wonderful leaders who just check in on not only the their player or their staff member but also their family and they've built the right to do that because they're trusted as a good person that cares about them and they check in and I've had leaders coaches who check who literally will check in on the partners once a week their, their player doesn't even know they're just saying how and that's not a background a backdoor way of finding out about the player it's just actually checking on is everything okay there? Anything we can do? So that, that, that's real leading. That's not managing. You're not managing a process doing that, but you are leading human beings by doing those sort of things. 
And then there's, I've seen some other leaders who literally have had conversations where they've done not, they haven't even engaged with their teams for three months, six months. And the reason being is we're not working together right now. We're waiting for, you know, the next project. So in that interim, they haven't seen a need to check in on people. So that's from in their mind, they are managing because there's nothing to do, particularly if it's a sports competition that's been postponed or whatever. So I don't need to be engaged with people. So they're two completely different mindsets. In thinking of leadership development, right, there's no shortage of leadership development programs out there. And I guess what's required in terms of our future leaders, right, to enable them to, the, the traits and the skills that you refer to here, um, which obviously in some programs are currently not being taught or enabled. So, so do you, you know, is there an opportunity or how do you see that evolving over the years? Are people starting to think about this differently? So the, a good starting point is an insight that 70% of behaviour comes from whatever environment you are in. And that comes from a meta study from the English Institute of Sport, uh, which was uh, from a few years ago. Now, that is a profound insight. And, and I think a lot of people like, what? No. 90% of my behavior is anchored in who I am. Not 70% of my behavior is determined by whatever environment I'm in. I think people need to really get their head around that. We are incredibly malleable to whatever environment we're in. You know, we're having a very nice conversation right now. If you and I then next week maybe um, catch up in the pub, There'll be a 70% at least shift in our behavior. And then the next day, maybe we go and present to a, a, a corporate board. There'll be another 70% shift in our body language, our language, um, you know, our energy levels, all of these things. So, and, and, and the most, you know, obvious way to think about it is a family. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, but if I come into, I've got two young children and, and, and my wife Elizabeth, and if I come into the room energized, positive, great eye contact, absolutely in the present, in that moment with them, and we're talking about today, what do you want to do, guys? How are you feeling? Okay, I am creating a hormonal reaction in them, which has a profound impact on their behavior. They feel their dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin levels, their anxiety levels reduce. There's a massive hormonal biological thing going on here. And it incredibly um, relates to behavior. But if I, at the same time, if I come into a room and I've had a bad day at work and I'm terrible body language and I've got my phone in front of me and I'm grumpy, clearly grumpy and clearly stressed, and I'm going and sitting in the corner and, uh, and I'm not engaging with them, then their anxiety levels will spike, their cortisol levels. Um, and though, and and so it's a completely different hormonal soup, mm. and it's exactly the same in a working environment. There's no different. If we've got a manager, a leader, or just peers, colleagues, even the most junior people, and you know it, we all know it. Mm. But it, I, I, when I coach leaders, I don't coach them on leading in a standalone way. I coach them on leading an environment, because if you're aware of these things and you have self awareness. It has a massive impact on the way that you engage with people. And even if you're having a bad day, and even if you're worried, or even if you didn't have a good sleep, all of these things, if you're at least aware of them about yourself and aware of how they translate into the environment and aware of how that affects other people and aware of how that affects their performance and the culture, mm. then we can shift. But there's still a lot of coaches and leaders who say, you know, I'm an emotional guy, so, you know, someday, you know, that, and they think that's all fine because they've sort of got some self-acceptance that they're emotional and all the rest of it, but they are actually not thinking about the impact on other people. Mm. So to me, when we're talking about leading and how we may take it to another level, I don't think it's complicated in all these super programs. I, I, I think you see profound change when we just even think about 70% of behaviour affected by our environment and what are the environmental um, influences and one of the main ones is obviously the leader whether that's a parent at home or you know a manager in a business or a head coach in a sports team so they have a profound but not the only effect on the environment so let's really really 
get intentional about that. And I, I mentioned this, Owen, because I love that just before we pressed record. Um, I'm curious around your intentions ahead of any interactions or conversations, because something that we had our first conversation last week and um, before this um, recording today. And in both conversations, I have felt very at ease and um, been able to enjoy and been able to express myself. So if we look at, you talk about the when we feel the long or capacity to communicate at a particular level and to express ourselves and to be present and to articulate and to listen. And I think I'm, I'm curious, is that just a natural <laughs> aura that you, you give off or is there, what intention do you set in, in life ahead of interactions ahead of this podcast? Is that something that you do? Do you set intentions? Not really. It's probably just my personality. Mm maybe how that would come across. Um, mm. But I, I do, I, I do, like mindfulness is so is very important. I'm a fan of mindfulness. But what I don't like is when people disconnect that from being present with each other. So it's all very well to have good breathing exercises and to meditate and all that. And I think that is massively beneficial. But from a performance point of view, What's really important is that when we are working together or connecting with each other, we are present with each other. We're not distracted by what happened in the past or what's happening in the future. And, you know, I do, you know, this. Well, I've loved this conversation with you because I can tell we're both locked into this in the present mm. and, you know, we're properly engaged with each other. And I, know, I just see it incredibly with my kids. If I'm sitting around and on my phone, I'm not present and they don't like it. And it diminishes the whole atmosphere and diminishes the energy levels around me. Whilst if I'm present and, and mindful in how I'm present and through asking them questions and engaging with them and, and having humour, it's a completely different situation. Mm-hmm. And I know what, which environment I prefer. So if I understand that, then I feel like I've got a responsibility to make sure that I try and create that around me as best I can. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. And I heard it said before, and we'll draw to a close because I can't, you know, could talk forever. Um, that when when we are not present, we steal from our future. And I guess what uh, you know, because you then walk away thinking, oh God, you know, whether that's I'm actually even thinking and reflecting back on on the school run this morning and all going very well, but the girls had a little sleep in and then we ended up having a bit of a rush. Managed it, but there was a moment where I definitely was like, come on, and anxiety levels probably for everybody went mm. went up a little bit. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I, I, as you're talking about the family unit and and, and the parent, I'm, I'm having a little reflection on that as well, which which is fine. And I think, you know, we're human, um, so we have those moments. But I think I like that notion as well, is that we do steal from our future because then you're walking back from the school and you're thinking, oh, God, hmm. should have just should have just let that moment go rather be five minutes late than, you know. But anyway, just thought I would uh, share no, that. Well, we had the same thing, actually. I took my um, daughter Olivia to school this morning and we were running late. And she was getting a bit anxious because if they are after nine o'clock, they have to write their name in the book and stuff. And yeah. she's, she just doesn't ever want to be doing that. So, yeah, we... Yeah, so there was anxiety, which often is part of the, our life experience. In fact, it's ever-present, um, no doubt about that. So it's how we manage it. And, yeah, actually she has got some good breathing exercises, so that mindful, that aspect of mindfulness helped her a little bit. She actually did a bit of yeah. – she was breathing a little bit just to calm herself, so that was fine. But what, I, she, what she was doing was worrying about if I'm after nine, I, my name goes down on the book and then my teacher has to come out to the reception and get me and it's embarrassing in front of my friends and, it, and I feel nutty. So what I was just trying to do was engage with her in a conversation where we weren't jumping to the, pre, to the future. We were just mm. talking about the present. So we're having actually a nice walk and you could hear about three different types of birds. Um, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, yeah. it's that. I mean, I'm not putting myself up as some great role no, model no. at all but I'm just making yeah. the point that even in that walk to school I'm able to shape her environment and her experience around what it is and if you just um, let loose it could have been very very stressful for her but we managed to just stay locked into the actual reality of the present and in the end we got there and the teacher actually said you got here by 10 seconds 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad you shared that story because I think there's going to be people listening as well, right, that perhaps they're not part of an organisation, but as you so nicely articulated, there's various different groups that we are a part of and to reflect on what we bring to those groups and how we affect that environment, I think, is huge. I am super conscious of our time. This has been an incredibly enjoyable, inspiring and uplifting conversation. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. I love chatting to you. Thank you so much for listening. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that has resonated with you, or perhaps you think it could benefit someone else, then please do share this link or start the conversation. If you haven't done so already, click on the subscribe button in your listening app. And as always, I really value your feedback. So please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And for more information, full show notes, links and resources, you can pop over to my website, SineadMillard.com. See you next time back here on The Courage To Be.